Hello and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today I'm joined by patient educator and advocate, Doug Rachek, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, Doug. That's good, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your uh, yourself? Um, and I know from, I've seen you, I've never spoken before, but I've seen you on uh, a lot of social media channels, which is what we're going to speak about, your work there on Facebook and um, and YouTube in particular. And I know your your business or your, your work history and your personal life are sort of intertwined. So could you give me a little bit of a background to yourself? Well, sure. Uh, thanks for having me on, by the way. I really appreciate it. Uh, I uh, started my career right out of college at a company that I had never heard of before when I walked into there. Um, I'd actually graduated without a job and was looking to get into politics. I thought it would be very interesting to work on a senator or a congressman's staff, um, maybe run a, run a campaign or be a part of a campaign. I'd done a little political work in college. Uh, so while I was looking for that dream job, I just needed to pull in a little bit of money over the summer, and I was getting married in the fall, so I thought it'd be good to save a little money. And I went to a temporary agency, and they said, well, you have a college degree and you know how to use the office Windows suite, so we are going to put you at this company called Medtronic. And until then, I had never heard of Medtronic, even though it's a huge major Minnesota company, uh, so it's, it's you know from my hometown, I had never heard of it. I went to work there, and uh, within three months, they had hired me. And uh, again, was still thinking I'm going to be in a career of politics. So uh, I'll, I'll work here while I can and make some money. And uh, I, I spent 14 years there uh, eventually over time. Uh, between 1997 and 2015, I spent 14 years there. I worked in five different divisions. So I worked with cardiac devices. I worked with their neurological devices. I was in their external defibrillation uh, business. I was in the vascular business, and I was in something called urogastro, which worked on things like urinary incontinence. Um, I worked in many, many different areas as well. I was, I was in education and customer service and quality and regulatory affairs, and a group called Healthcare Economics, which worked with the, for the most part, the American healthcare uh, system, so insurance companies. Uh, I left a couple of times because of layoffs. So I was laid off a couple of times and came back. I left a couple of times because of uh, family circumstances. For example, my wife got a job offer out in Seattle and it was one of those opportunities you just couldn't pass up. And so we, we took that and there was no opportunity for me at Medtronic in Seattle. So I left there, worked for Microsoft a little bit, worked for another uh, chemical, for a chemical manufacturing company out there. And then we moved back to Minnesota and I was able to come back to Medtronic again for a time. So I, I always seem to find my way back. Uh, and it's, it's just a fascinating company to work for. I, I'm, I'm amazed every day about new products and new ways that they're using things like pacemakers or defibrillators to treat different kinds of cardiac issues. Uh-huh. And so, but, the, but you're not working there now, are you? No, I'm not. Actually, um, I started having uh, my cardiac issues in 2011, uh, ended up getting a defibrillator in 2014, 
and then um, started having some really big problems focusing at work. Uh, it was it was pretty a, a big shock to me. I guess I wasn't prepared mentally for what it meant to have a, an ICD. I kept having this overriding thought that I'm 40 years old and after my surgeries, which which I can explain why in a little bit, but I was really beat up after my surgeries and uh, felt like a 90 year old man and thought I would never get healthy again. And so that really impacted me psychologically. I'd had a real hard time focusing at work. Uh, at the time I was um, you know, a public speaker, an educator, and I had a hard time getting up in front of people talking about the things that I knew to be true. I kept second guessing myself and uh, I just couldn't get up in front of people again. So uh, I, I chose to leave Medtronic in 2015 to recover and uh, became a, a stay-at-home dad. My boys were uh, 10 and uh, 8 at the time. And uh, actually, it, it's just kind of worked out for us as a family. So uh, I, I, I haven't returned back yet, though I am, I am uh, working with Medtronic a little bit here and there. I do a little bit of consulting. I still have a lot of colleagues and friends there, so I talk to them about the, uh, the things that they're working on, especially in terms of patient education, patient engagement. And so I'm staying involved and looking at some opportunities that might be coming up. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that is something that has been lacking, perhaps, isn't it? When with these companies that produce these uh, implanted devices, that the, the patient doesn't always uh, fully get educated about what the, uh, the ramifications are about having one of these things inside them. Right. And that's what I found after becoming a patient. Uh, as, a, as an employee, I had always, we, we, I mean, we talk a lot about how important the patient is. And really everything that you do at a company like Medtronic, and I have friends who work at Boston Scientific and, and, and St. Jude Abbott, so they, they are the same way. Everything you do is for the patient. Um, it, you just get a really, really different perspective when you're on the receiving end of that. And so I started seeing where patients were asking for things and I had been on the inside. And so I, I had understood how and why a company was deciding to do it a certain way. And sometimes I had been involved in those decisions. And I, I just had this perspective of, well, I understand why the company's doing it the way they're doing it. And now I understand why a patient would want to see it done differently, why that would be important to them. And so I'm trying to help bridge that gap, um, both on the patient side, where I'm helping people understand why things are done a certain way or uh, how they can use the information they do have to uh, live their lives. And then I'm trying to help on the other side, on the, on the industry side, to help them recognize uh, there, are, there are things that patients would love to have that you just don't understand, you don't know about, just because you're not a patient, but that's okay. You know, I understand why you're doing things the way you are, but you could do them just a little bit differently. And it would make such a big difference. That's really why I started uh, joining the, the different social media groups that I'm a part of. It's because I saw this huge gap between what I know as a, as a former employee and as a patient and what the pretty typical patients know nowadays. There's a huge gap and it, it doesn't need to be that way. So what was your, um, your reason for having the implant? You mentioned a little bit about it. Uh, could you just sort of briefly give me uh, an explanation of how you come to ha come, came to have uh, an ICD, I believe? Sure. Uh, it was, I think it was around 2011. I, I can't exactly remember what year I started getting these symptoms, maybe 2010 or 2011. But I started having symptoms where a couple of different things would happen. One would be I'd be 
uh, on the couch or, or in bed reading a book or watching a TV show. And all of a sudden my heart rate would go from its normal resting heart rate around 50, 55 beats a minute. All of a sudden it would be clicking along at 120 beats a minute, 130 beats a minute. Um, other times I'd be laying there and my heart would just all of a sudden start pounding. It was beating at a normal rate, but it felt like it was coming out of my chest. And that would last about a minute or two and it would go away. The other thing that would happen is when I would get out of bed or if I had been sitting at work for a long time and would get up from my desk, I would get this sudden rush of lightheadedness and I'd have to pause and just either stand there or sit down again and wait a second and it would go away and then I could go about my day. Uh, that started happening every once in a great while. Um, and I guess I thought it was just normal. Uh, you know, I, I joke about it now that here I am, this this employee at this large cardiac involved company that, that works with cardiac issues. And I know all the signs of heart problems. And yet I just I completely ignored them. Uh, I guess I didn't think at, at 36, 37 that I should be having those kinds of issues. So that progressed. It happened more and more frequently uh, through the years until uh, 2013. It was like October, I think, of 2013. I had an incident at about 1.30 in the morning. Uh, my my uh, youngest had woken us up and we were trying to get him back to bed. My wife and I were both up and I just got this huge wave of lightheadedness and uh, decided to go back into our bedroom and actually went into the bathroom and, and sat down on the floor. I started sweating. Um, I thought, you know, if I sit down on the floor, it'll be cold and I'll lean up against the wall. And I sat there for what felt like about a minute, minute and a half. And then I felt fine. So I got up and, and, and went back into the bedroom and all the lights are off. And our, our son is in bed and my wife's back in bed. And I thought that was awfully quick. And uh, I, I asked my wife about it. And she said, well, you've been in the bathroom about 10, 15 minutes. And I just couldn't account for that time. Um, now, I, I, we had been it had been a long, long week at work. My wife had been traveling. So there was all this extra stress about taking care of the house and kids and, and job while she's away. And we had also been out with friends Friday night. So there may have been a little bit of alcohol involved. So I just kind of ignored it. I thought, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not 21 anymore. Uh, but the second time it happened was in June of uh, 2014. And we were at a friend's cabin up in Northern Minnesota. And they had this beautiful cabin on this lazy river it's absolutely picturesque. It's something you'd see out of a magazine. Uh, we were spending the weekend up there and uh, they had borrowed a camper from the neighbors. There were probably four families up there. A couple of them had brought their campers up with. And there was one open bed in the cabin and there was this open camper. And, and my boys wanted to sleep in the camper. And I grew up camping. So I thought that that'd be fun. But my wife is more of a city girl. And so she didn't want to sleep in the camper. Uh, she took the bed in the cabin. And it was a normal night. We sat around the campfire and, and talked and, uh, you know, looked at the stars and, and caught up with our friends from college and their their families and uh, went to bed about 11, probably about five in the morning. I woke up, which is a normal night of sleep for me. And I knew I wasn't going to go back to sleep, but I didn't think anybody else would be up. So I just thought, well, I'll get up and I'll use the restroom. I'll check on the boys, make sure they're covered up because it's kind of chilly in, in the camper now. And I'll get my phone and just surf the internet for a little while. There's no cell coverage up in, in Northern Minnesota, but uh, our, our friends had high-speed internet and wi uh, wireless, so I could, I could at least surf the internet. Uh, I got up and, and used the restroom and checked on the boys, and then after, I hadn't even grabbed my phone yet, and all of a sudden I blacked out. 
And I'm pretty sure it was uh, momentary. I don't think I was laying on the ground for very long, but I woke up and this is when I knew something was seriously wrong. I tried to roll over and get back up and I blacked out again. And then every time I tried to pick my head up off the ground, I would be on the verge of a blackout. My vision was gone. My hearing was going away. Um, I could just feel myself passing out again. And that lasted for about 20 minutes. And uh, kind of the overriding thought that I had was that I was going to die and that my boys were going to find me there on the floor. And they were, I believe, nine and seven at the time. Uh, So I didn't want them to find me. And so I made it my goal to get back in bed, thinking that if I got back in bed and died there, that'd be okay, right? They wouldn't find me. (laughs) Rational thought going through my head. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It took me 20 minutes to get into bed. And then I was terrified to fall asleep or to pass out again. Um, And so I I laid there panicking uh, and my heart eventually calmed down. And about an hour later, my oldest son woke up and I told him, go into the cabin and get mom. Uh, She came in and I told her the story and I was terrified to move. Um, You know, she asked, do do you want me to call 911? And and my heart had calmed down at the time. Um, And so I said, no, just help me get into the cabin where there's more people. And so we did. We got into the cabin and I laid down on the couch and, and fell asleep and woke up about three hours later. And I felt fantastic. Uh, had a great, you know, great big lunch, chat with our friends. And it was a Sunday. So we went home for the weekend or for the end of the weekend. But uh, we both knew uh, that I, I had to do something. I had to get this checked out. Yeah, we, I, I, I went and saw a, a cardiologist. And of course, working for Medtronic, I contacted all these friends that I know, uh, you know, one of them is a sales rep for Medtronic here in, in my area. So contacted him asking who, who's the best person to see. And uh, he did some checking for me because it wasn't his hospital area. It was a, a, just a slightly different area and came back with the name of a doctor. So I went and saw him. We ran uh, several different tests. Uh, I did a stress test. We did an echo. He couldn't find anything wrong. And he said, you know, normally what we do next is we have you wear a Holter monitor for 30 days and we're probably not going to find anything because you're, you know, nine months between incidences. So we're probably not going to find anything. And then we'll do another 30 day test and probably still not find anything. So he said, "Uh, I know you're a Medtronic uh, employee. So why don't we put in a link loop recorder, which is a Medtronic device? And I said, absolutely. (laughs) Could you briefly explain what a, a, a link um, yeah, loop, loop device is? Yeah, it's a, it's called an insertable loop recorder, and it's a, it's a non-therapeutic device. All it does is listen to your heart rate. It's basically like a, a two-lead EKG. Uh, so if you if you go into the hospital and they do a, a, a readout of your heart, they'll put, uh, I think it's 12 leads on your body, on different parts, on your ankles, on your wrists. They put them on all of your chest, and then they can read your heart really accurately. This is like doing a two-lead EKG, but it's implanted in your body. Very small device. So it's a bit like wearing a very high-tech Fitbit all the time, is it? Right. And it records you 24 hours a day. It's looking for certain heart rhythms. And then when the you as the patient feel symptoms, you click a button on a little remote control and it forces the device to record uh, the next two minutes and the previous six. So your doctor can see exactly what happened. You had a normal heart rhythm and then you started feeling these symptoms. It can, it, he can look at your, your heart rhythm and see what's happening. And it, it's used to eliminate a lot of things, but it's also used to figure out this is definitely a cardiac issue that you're having. And uh, 
um, you know, move forward with, with the options for therapy. And that's exactly what happened with me is we were, uh, it was a weekend. We were on our way to a friend's house and I was walking through the kitchen when I had this huge wave of lightheadedness and nausea and my vision disappeared and my hearing was going away. And I grabbed the countertop and I, I was thinking about how am I going to crumple to the floor so that I don't hurt myself and it stopped, it went away. Um, and so I, I used a little remote and tagged that event and that automatically gets sent to my doctor's office. But being that it was a weekend, they didn't look at it until Monday. Uh, and actually, um, they didn't look at it until, until Tuesday for some reason. That's okay. Uh, but when they did, they said, we really want you to come in and, and, and run some more tests. Because what they found was about five seconds of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, which is a heart rate of about 320 beats per minute. Uh, not enough to pump blood. So that's why I felt lightheaded while I was almost going to pass out. So they, they know that the issue I'm having is this, this high heart rate, which non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, if it is sustained, it turns into ventricular fibrillation, which is a cardiac arrest. Uh, so I'm at risk of a cardiac arrest now. Uh, they, they've had this documented case of non-sustained VT and two episodes of me passing out. Uh, so we ran a whole slew of tests at the hospital. They actually wouldn't let me leave. I spent three days in the hospital because they were worried uh, what would happen if I went home and I had another issue. Uh, and after three days of tests in the hospital, we still couldn't find the root cause of the problem. If they had been able to find an area of the heart that was causing this, they could have uh, they could have performed an ablation. What what sort of tests were they doing? Oh boy, they did a let's see, they did a, um, a CT angiogram. They did a uh, cardiac MRI. So they, they put the, uh, the barium fluid through my, my veins to do this cardiac MRI. I did the procanamide challenge to see if I had Brugada syndrome, uh, another stress test, all sorts of, all sorts of different tests. It took three days to run all of them, uh, but they, they couldn't find anything. They, they could not find any real reason that they could point to that would show why I was having this heart issue. So then, then we had to have this, this discussion of what do we do next? The, the doctor doesn't, can't ablate anything. Um, he's not sure what medications to give me to stop the non-sustained VT. Uh, he said, basically, it's going to be like throwing spaghetti against the wall. We're going we're gonna to put you on a medication, and then we're going to wait to see if you pass out again. And if you do, we're going to change medications, and then we'll wait to see if you pass out again. And he said, all the while, you're at risk of a cardiac arrest. We don't know if this is going to turn into a cardiac arrest. So he said, I, I really, really recommend that you go home with an ICD. And uh, that's what we decided to do. Um, didn't, didn't take very long, very much of a discussion. Uh, so that's, that's how I ended up with an ICD. Cool. Uh, at least you got sorted before you had a cardiac arrest, which is uh, a lot of cases don't get that way around, do they? Right, right. And, and survival rates for cardiac arrest are, are not all that wonderful. Uh, you know, I, I, and I know that. So knowing the statistics made it very easy to, to make that decision to get an ICD. Uh -huh. So it's given you a real insight into what having a ICD is all about and having a, a cardiac issue. So right. it's, it's pro possibly not the best experience that you want to have, but um, <laughs> it, at least it sort of gives you a, an added advantage over the usual Medtronic employee. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, 
there obviously there's Medtronic employees who have devices, and then a lot of people who have family members who have devices, especially parents. Uh, so there's really a lot of um, connection. You know, people when when we when we would talk about patients at at Medtronic, people were envisioning their family members, and it's, so it's really easy for them to to see that side of it, but. Uh, you know, I was I was an employee there 14 years, and I thought I understood patients. I understood how they thought. I worked with patients many times, and so I, I felt like I already had this really great insight into the you know patient's mind and what they're thinking, and learned that I really didn't have a clue. I really didn't understand. Uh, it, it took me going through this to see where a company like Medtronic could make improvements. And uh, it took me going through this experience to see where there were gaps in education with patients that were just, it was unnecessary to have these gaps. I understand why they happen uh, in knowing the whole process of how patients get educated. I use my own examples. I, you know, my friend, the, the sales rep, he, he was in the surgery room for my implant and he came and talked to me afterwards. And I remember seeing him. And I remember talking about the device, but I don't remember anything that he said because I was too busy losing my mind about having an ICD. So I, I've, I totally understand that it has a, a real psychological impact on you, not just having the device, but the whole cardiac issues. Uh, yeah. Am I going to live? Am I going to die? Uh, what's it mean for my life and my family and all of that sort of thing? Did, so did they actually diagnose what was going on with your heart? No, we still don't know. We still have no idea. Uh, I've been on a heart medication called Verapamil, and it has really greatly reduced the number of instances. I haven't had any episodes of fainting uh, since 2014. Uh, I have had a couple of episodes where I felt something coming on. Um, uh, it was probably another episode of non-sustained VT, but a really brief short one. Uh, never anything that was anywhere close to that time where I was walking through the kitchen and almost passed out. So I think the medication is working. It's working quite well. These instances are down to maybe two or three a year now. And uh, sometimes they still happen when I get up out of bed. But I've learned and now I need to swing my feet onto the floor, put them on the floor, sit for a second, and then I can get up. Uh, I have to learn to, to change my ways a little bit. Uh-huh. So has the uh, device done anything? Is it paced you out of VT at all? Not a thing. That's that's the interesting thing is it's uh, – I'm I'm pacing at 0.1%, which means that's about the rate it would record because of the nightly check that it runs. Uh, At night, it will check you for about three to five seconds just to make sure the leads are still working and thresholds are still good. Uh, Most people sleep right through it because it happens in the middle of the night. Uh, But that's all my device is doing. It's never uh, detected an episode of VT long enough for it to um, even consider shocking. So I've never experienced the anti-tacky pacing, the ATP therapy, and I've never experienced a shock. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, at least I've never experienced a shock while uh, outside the surgical suite. Inside the surgical suite is a different story. That was a yeah. <laughs> well, I have to test these things, don't they? <laughs> yeah, and that was uh, that was the issue with mine. Is uh, tell you that story briefly is that during my first implant, um, I have a. a I have what's called persistent left superior vena cava, 
which it's, it's the, the main vessel that brings um, blood into your heart. In my body, it's um, flipped. It's like a mirror image of most people. About 1% of the population has this. And it doesn't mean anything for cardiac function. It's just this anatomical difference. Um, my, my plumbing is different. What it means is that I can't have a left-sided implant like most people do, where the device is under their left collarbone. Mine is under my right collarbone. And that means that the electricity flows through my body differently. Uh, when the lead, uh, when the electricity leaves the lead and goes back to the device, it's not traveling through the left ventricle uh, very effectively. Not like it would when it, if, it, if my device was on the left side. So they have to test your device uh, while you're in the surgical suite, and they were they don't do that for everybody. Um, it's 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 actually uh, falling out of favor that they do this, so they don't find it very necessary. But for me, they definitely wanted to do that. And so what they do in that test, it's called a defibrillation threshold testing or DFT testing. And what they do is they implant your leads, they implant your device, and then they, they tickle your heart with electricity to induce fibrillation. So they can induce a cardiac arrest, basically. It's, it's not exactly the same thing, but it mimics it pretty closely. And then they watch and see what the device does. And the device is supposed to detect the rhythm, charge, and shock you out of the rhythm. Uh, usually they have to do that test once and they find that it works and then they sew the patient up and send them home. Sometimes they have to do it twice. And in a very, very rare case, they have to do it three times just to make sure that it works. Uh, I failed that test six times. And so they ran the test seven times total. And in between the tests, they need to get you out of fibrillation while they move the lead around because they need to find a new place for the lead. That's the, that's the problem. So they find a new place for the lead and they run the test again. But to get you out of the fibrillation, they shock you externally. And so that first uh, implant, I received four external shocks in addition to the, the seven shocks from my device. And then, then it worked and they sent me home. Uh, but at my two-month follow-up, they did an x-ray and found that one of my leads had uh, moved, uh, had dislodged, and had moved quite a bit. So they asked me to come back in, and we're going to run the DFT test one more time. And if I passed, that's great. I can go home. But if not, they're going to have to open me back up and revise the lead, put it back in place. And that's kind of where everything fell apart. I failed that first test, and they had to shock me externally to bring me back. And then I ended up failing a, that test a total of 16 times and received uh, eight external defibrillations during that uh, the surgery lasted three and a half hours. It's only supposed to last about an hour. I remember the first thing I remember waking up was looking at the clock and seeing that it was about five hours after I went into surgery. And I looked at the nurse and I said, I guess that didn't go well. And she laughed and said, yeah, no, it didn't go very well at all. So after the surgery, I was beat up. I was exhausted. I, I mean, I had been basically you know, hit with a bat a number of times. And that's why I felt like I was 90 years old. Yeah, I can understand. I was going to say, sometimes or quite often, they just use a local anesthetic for inserting an ICD, but presumably you were knocked out. I was, yeah. And that's because they were going to do the DFT testing. Oh, just as well, but that sounds a bit... <laughs> uh, yeah. That would have been pretty traumatizing, wouldn't it, to be in a wake through all of that lot? Yeah, I already was, and I was asleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this sort of brings me round to uh, one of the sort of main reasons I was going to talk to you, which is about your your social media work. Because I've seen some of your videos and they're excellent, and uh, we can talk a little bit about them. But one one of the ones was uh, 
you i think it was before you sort of did your informational videos was uh where you were talking at um medtronic and you were talking about how medtronic could improve their perhaps their processes and the way they worked and you were talking about the education and involving patients in projects more. yes i just wondered did anything come of that because that was like uh, i think it was about 2017 you you did that one yeah uh, i have i think you're talking about the, the one where i was actually at medtronic talking to a group of employees and i've done that um let's see i've talked to the the lar- to a large group there i think four times now and then i've been asked to come back to be on different uh, panels and part of different projects and that's one of the things that i i advocate i advocate for when i'm at medtronic is that um, there are there are a number of projects that I, I have seen go through the works and are launched, and they are geared towards patients. They want to improve patients' lives. They want to in- increase education and communication with patients. And I, I, I've seen some of the projects, and I think, boy, I wish they had done that differently. I think they would have connected more with patients if they did that a little differently. And one of the things I think that would really help that is if they had patients on the project throughout the whole process. I've been in to uh, sit on panels where they say, here's something we're working on. Um, This is why we're doing it. This is our goal. What do you think? And it's this great collaborative effort. We'll we'll talk all day long and there'll be these great ideas. And then, uh, you know, I won't hear from them for several months. And uh, maybe I'll come back later and they'll show me what they've done since. And I think again, ah, boy, I wish I wish we had been able to talk, uh, you know, a month after that last conversation, because I think I, I would have helped steer you in a slightly different direction to help make this even better. Uh, it's, it's again, it's just about um, not being a patient, not living with this every day. And I, I, I use the uh, I use the analogy. I say, you know, I don't. I don't, I've never had cancer and I've never lost a child, but I've had friends who have had cancer and I've had friends who've lost a child and I, I can be with them and I can talk with them and I can empathize with them as much as I can, but I can never understand what they're going through. I could never understand the day-to-day things about what happens at night or in the middle of the night. I can't even come to come close to grasping that without going through it. And that's what it's like for me now uh, when I talk to my, my former colleagues is, well, there, there are a lot of things that you just don't know about. And I, can, I try to help them understand that a little bit more. Things like anxiety and depression. Um, there was a study done that showed 40% of cardiac patients, not necessarily device patients, but cardiac patients, uh, 40% of them suffer from severe anxiety and depression, clinically diagnosed. And that's an incredibly huge number. In the general population, it's about 7%. So if you don't understand what anxiety is, and most people don't, they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've had, I've had anxiety before. But what they mean is I was giving a presentation to senior management and I was really nervous. That's very different than debilitating anxiety where you can't get a thought out of your head and it keeps building and building and building. That's very different. And so if you don't understand that, it's really hard to develop a program that treats that. And so that's kind of things I, I talk about when I'm with uh, former colleagues of mine. Mm-hmm. And I, I think some of your videos sort of uh, cover that as well from, uh, or, or, or the information that you're giving is going to be dispelling a lot of the anxiety that people are going to have. And um, if I can just sort of list off some of the videos that you've, you've done on your channel, um, this is on YouTube. 
post-implant uh, instructions. Yeah, I can't read my own writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I do. Uh, what I have found is that uh, when when people are anxious about medical issues in general, the reason is because of what they don't know. Um, and this is why people Google. You know, this is why people hear about something like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and they go home and they Google it and they try to understand what it is so they can be at least a little more educated about the condition. So this is what I found with, with people who are uh, device patients now is most of the anxiety has to do with either the things they don't know or the misinformation that they have. So one of them is, is you know, like I say, post-implant instructions. Uh, people talk about uh, well, how how long do I have to wear the sling? Well, that's different for everybody. First of all, I didn't go home with a sling. My doctor didn't want me to have my arm in a sling. And they do that because um, there's a risk of dislodging leads after an implant. And if you move your, your implant side arm a lot, you're at a higher risk of dislodging your leads. So they tell you, don't use your arm very much. First of all, don't lift anything over 10 pounds for six to eight weeks. And don't lift your arm above your head. And the instruction that most doctors give is don't put your elbow above your shoulder. And they're, they're doing that so that you don't reach for something on the top shelf. That puts you at a higher risk of dislodging your lead, and then you have to go back in for another procedure. But people hear that. They think they're, they go home in a sling, and they're told, don't move your arm around a lot. Don't reach above your head. And they think, I have to leave my arm in this sling for six to eight weeks, and I can't do things like scratch my top of my head. I can't wash my hair. And that's not true. Uh, you can just don't reach for the, the shampoo. If it's on a shelf way above your head, use your other arm. You can always use your other arm to, to grab something. Um, and so I did a video on, on implant instructions. Just what do you, what do you do after an implant? Why do they tell you not to do this? And what do they really mean? Because I, I think people really limit their lifestyle thinking that they, they can't uh, you know, they can't use their, their fork in their, their left hand to, to eat because they're afraid of dislodging lead when that's not the case at all. What, what is the, uh, how are the device and the, um, and the leads held in place? Uh, that's actually part of one of my videos too. I talk about that. Uh, the leads are, are, are inserted into the heart. They go into a, um, a vest, a vein that goes right directly into the, uh, the, the left, uh, right atrium of the heart. And then depending on if you have a single or dual chamber lead, you have leads either in the right ventricle or the right atrium and right ventricle. And some people have um, what they call triple chamber devices or CRT devices, and that's a, a different kind of implant. Also something I, I explain on one of my videos. But the leads are inserted into the heart, and there's two different kinds of leads. One's, one screws in to the heart wall, and one you just kind of push into the heart wall because it's fibrous, and it has these little tongs on it that grab the fibers. And that's a pretty strong hold already, but what happens when you put a lead into the body is that the body uh, recognizes that it's a foreign body and attacks it. And when it realizes it can't destroy it, what it will do is will encapsulate it in a fibrous tissue. And they call it scar tissue, but it's just kind of this fiber that goes all the way around the lead, uh, in the vein, all the way up to the device, but especially where it attaches to the heart. And that's what really anchors the heart to, or the, the lead to the heart wall. Uh, so that's one point. That's that's one secure point. 
And that, that takes this, this six weeks? They yeah, say. it takes about, about four to six weeks. And, and just to be safe, they say six to eight weeks. Just take it easy for six to eight weeks. Don't lift anything heavy with that implant side arm. Don't reach up over your head. Just to give it time to solidify in place. But on the lead as well, there's something called a suturing sleeve. And that's uh, it's a movable um, sleeve that they can uh, basically sew to the muscle. So they wrap a, a, um, a you know, stitching around that sleeve and then they sew it to the muscle. And that holds the lead in place up closer to the device. And then the device itself uh, also has a suturing hole in the header block. And so they can suture the device to your muscle as well to prevent it from moving. So the devices really are... I mean, not everybody, not all the doctors use the, the, the suturing um, hole in the header block, but most of them do. And so these, these things are really secure in your body. Uh, it, would, it would take something um, to, you know, significant to dislodge them. Even so, dislodgements happen. They're just something that happened and happened to me. Uh, and it happens, you know, just, I think the, the occurrence rate is something like, a, you know, less than 2% of, of patients have a dislodgement. Is it something that you did or patients can do to themselves is they doing to um perhaps excessive exercises or things like that or is it just a, a malfunction in in part of the process yeah it's more the latter uh, there's there's no real evidence that says uh more activity leads to more dislodgements it's it's a belief it's when you kind of think about it, it uh, it makes sense. Well, if I use that arm a lot, I'm at a higher risk of dislodging the lead. Um, so just out of an abundance of caution, they tell people to just be cautious. Let your body heal and, uh, and, and give it time to grow that, that, that fiber around the lead and around the device. And, uh, and then, you know, it'll be much, much harder to dislodge a lead after that. Uh, in my case, I don't think it was anything that I did. I certainly wasn't being active after my first implant. Um, I was not back to running when I had my second surgery. So my first surgery was in uh, November and my second surgery was in January. So I, I had not been active at all in between that time. I just think it was something that happened and, uh, you know, had to deal with it. And um, one of your other videos or a couple of them really are, um, one of the sort of questions that comes up quite a lot really is, is to do with magnets and people are worried about uh, having electromagnetic equipment near them. Can you, in your video explains a lot in that and also to do with, uh, you've got another separate one on the iWatch. Could you sort of explain a little bit about magnets? Yeah, they're related because the iWatch, uh, I, I didn't know this until I tested it myself, but the iWatch has a little magnet inside it. Uh, and that's one of the biggest ones, magnets. And the other one is airport security, and they're kind of related. Um, so, uh, you know, back years ago, the, the, our devices had these little little components inside them uh, called reed switches. And it's a very common electrical switch. And in the case of our devices, they're activated by magnets. And this was this was done for a clinical reason. It was done to allow clinicians to interact with the device in a certain way. And it, it actually ended up causing problems uh, back in the 1990s, early 2000s. What would happen is that uh, when you use a magnet on a device, and it depends what kind of device you have, how it will react. If you use a magnet with a pacemaker or a CRTP device, the device switches modes and it goes into a continuous pacing mode. Uh, so uh, 
it depends on which company you have, how fast that is. But with Medtronic, it's 85 beats a minute. And with other companies, they go up as high as 110 beats a minute. So if you put a magnet on a pacemaker or a CRTP, it'll switch modes. It'll pace you 100% of the time uh, from Medtronic devices, 85 beats a minute. It doesn't even watch what your heart is doing. It doesn't care what your heart's doing. It's just going to pace you 85 beats a minute. And this is done so that clinicians can work on the device and, and have a, you know, a constant reading on the device. There's no variation. Um, if you do the same thing on an ICD, the pacing portion of the ICD isn't affected at all. It doesn't do anything to pacing. But what it will do in an ICD is it, it will inhibit detections. And what that means is that it will um, prevent the device from seeing a fatal rhythm. And so it prevents the device from shocking. And this is done for surgeons. You know, if you imagine if you're having some kind of surgery, especially open heart surgery, and the patient has a, some kind of cardiac rhythm and gets shocked while they're on the table, especially with things like scalpels and electrocautery involved. Uh, so they put a magnet on the device and that prevents the device from shocking during the surgical procedure. So there was a very good reason why they did these things. What ended up happening, though, is that patients were coming into contact with magnets or maybe going through airport security, and the magnetic force of the airport security was causing this reed switch to activate. And then if the, if the reed switch had any kind of moisture on it, they would end up sticking together and not separating. And that would cause those devices to stay in the mode that they were in. So pacemakers would never leave that 85 beats a minute, which if you're a pacemaker patient and then you go to run a marathon, that's going to be a problem. Um, but with those ICD patients, those reed, reed switches were sticking and they were preventing the device from shocking. And so there were patients that died because of this. And this was an issue that happened with every device manufacturer. They all used reed switches. So back in the early 2000s, they switched from reed switches to something called a Hall sensor. So there's no mechanical part anymore. It's the sensor. It looks for a magnetic field. And when it detects one, it uh, activates this mode switch uh, electronically. So there's no actual mechanical switch that can stick anymore. But they also did a couple other things. They added more shielding to the device. And then they also developed a international standard for how much magnetic energy would be needed in order to induce that mode switch. It didn't used to be very much. Now it is a strength of 10 Gauss. And if you know about magnets, that's actually a pretty fairly strong magnet. This is probably like a rare earth magnet. Um, it's, it's something that you would stick several pages of paper to a fridge. It's not your typical magnet that you would have in a house. But as patients, we still come in contact with them from time to time. You'd be surprised at how many kids' toys have really strong magnets in them. Um, iPad covers have magnets in them. And then, so when I heard that the iWatch had a magnet in it, I thought, well, this could be dangerous for a patient. I'm, I wonder if it's strong enough to activate the magnet response in my device. And so that's why I did a little test uh, to see if that would happen and made a video about it. And uh, the answer is that, no, it's not strong enough. Uh, the, the magnet inside the eye, the eye watch is not strong enough to activate that magnet response. But we do have to be careful about wrist straps, wrist watches that have the straps that are magnetic. Mm -hmm. Those are usually strong enough to activate that, that response. So uh, it, it's recommended that we not wear those. So if anyone who, who comes in contact, with, who's got a, an implant and comes in contact with a magnet, how will they know? Will it will the device always alert them? Uh, it, it varies on the device and it varies by manufacturer. Um, for pacemakers, there are, uh, as far as I know, there are no pacemakers that make any kind of alert 
to the patient. There's nothing that's audible or, or felt. Um, some devices vibrate, but there are no pacemakers that do that as far as I understand. The ICDs are different. Medtronic devices make a tone, which you can hear on one of my videos as well, but it's a solid tone for 10 seconds. Um, uh, Boston Scientific devices will make a tone that sounds like a truck backing up, that beep, beep, beep. And then um, St. Jude Abbott devices vibrate rather than make a noise. So they create a vibration. And then some devices can be programmed so that they completely ignore magnets entirely or that they don't have an audible or, or um, physical uh, vibration. So they can be programmed to not do those things. So it's, it's best to know what your device is set for and what it means. The really important thing to know is that magnets do not harm your device. And that's the point I try to make in my videos about magnets is that these devices were designed to interact with magnets. That's what they were designed to do. And so it's very safe to have a magnet around your device. Um, as a patient, though, you don't want to have a magnet on your device. You can be close to them. I've heard of some people who have eliminated all the magnets in their homes, and that's really not necessary. You just need to not lay a magnet on your chest and leave it there. Um, they're, they're safe to have around. They are, are not going to interfere with your device as long as they're more than a few inches away. Uh, that's what it takes. Uh, it takes a really strong magnet to be really, really close to your device to activate any kind of response from it. Thanks for that, because I, I, I do, you, do, you see the same sort of questions over and over again. Am I going to damage my uh, device or reprogramming right. it is uh, one that people think. Uh, so it's good to hear that they, they can't do anything to it, basically. And if, if generally if uh, it is interfering with it or it, your your implant has detected it, it will generally let you know whether that be beeping or by vibrating depending on the the different manufacturers as you say yeah, so the icds yeah the, the, the defibrillator uh, icds and crtds you'll have that that either audible or physical reaction um for pacemakers though you might not notice it until you're trying to do something and your heart rate's not changing so people will notice it when they try to take a nap or go to sleep and their heart rate is staying at 85 beats a minute or they run up a flight of stairs and they feel lightheaded um, you know, that's when I say, take a look around. What do you have? Are you, are you maybe carrying a purse in your arms that has a, a, a magnetic clasp? Are you, do you have a, a lanyard with a magnetic pin in it? Um, you know, that's resting right on your device. If that's the case, move the magnet away and everything returns back to normal. But yeah, you, you can't scramble your programming. It doesn't shut off your pacing. That's one of the big fears. People say, I'm hundred percent paced. I, I can't have a pacemaker shut off. Well, that's okay. A magnet won't do that. Um, so, you know, it doesn't scramble your programming. It doesn't shut your device off. Uh, it just interacts in those certain ways. And the, the way you avoid that is to just keep a magnet, you know, four or five inches away from your device. Mm -hmm. And going back to that read, the read switch um, that you talked about, that they're not used in any devices in the last 10 or 15 years. So most people will um not having an implant for that length of time anyway would they say right. all the ones that are out in the wild should be perfectly okay shouldn't they? right yeah if you've had a, a, a implanted device in the last 10 years you you wouldn't have a read switch in your device correct so so you don't need to worry about going through the airport uh the scanners or what about hand scanners? Right. That's, that's another, that's probably one of the biggest uh, anxiety inducing things that I found with patients is airport security. 
Um, again, because back in the 90s and early 2000s, doctors were telling their patients, don't go through airport security. And that's because they were having this issue. And when you have a medical device, uh, it's not a fix like that doesn't happen quickly. Um, you know, once they discover the problem, they have to redesign the device. They have to put it through testing. It has to go through the, the various approval processes like with FDA or the, the processes over in Europe. So it, it's a six, seven, eight year process to get a new device that is redesigned out on the market. And then you wouldn't take someone who has a two-year-old device and, and just replace it because of this, because the occurrence of it is so incredibly low that actually having another surgery, the risk of infection is higher than the risk of you actually activating this problem or having this problem in your device. So you, they just had to let the devices come to end of life and replace them with new ones. But those new devices hit the market uh, you know, 12, 13, 14 years ago. So yeah, if you have, a, have had a, uh, an implant in the last 10 years uh, or a replacement in the last 10 years, you have one of the new devices. But with airport security, um, they still... Uh, the medical device companies, all of them still say it's safe to go through the archway now. Just don't stand in the archway. Don't hug the archway. Just walk through like a, like everybody else. And then with the hand wands, same thing. Uh, it, 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 they typically have a large magnet in them. That's how they operate. They're looking for a magnetic field, uh, looking for, for metal on your body. So it's okay that they wand you. Just ask them not to hold it over your device. They can wand over your device once or twice. That's fine. Uh, just ask them to not hold it over your device, which is how they operate anyway when they're doing their job. They don't typically hold it over your device for several seconds. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah. And, and by the way, the millimeter wave scanners, the ones that rotate around you, uh, those are entirely safe. There was actually a recent study done, I think it was just this past year, where they tested something like 3,000 uh, different incidences of patients going through this and absolutely no effect to the devices at all. So... Uh, even if patients are still a little wary of going through airport security, they can request to go through the millimeter wave scanner, and that's uh, perfectly safe for the device, entirely safe. Yeah, well, that's great to hear. Um, so in a lot of ways, people don't need to be worried about going to the airport, apart from the usual worries that everyone has, really. Exactly. You know, same thing with sports venues or, or at concerts when you have to go through security. Uh, there's It's... It is all safe. Um, and you think about it, if, if, if a company, a major company had an issue, you know, think if you put your iPhone through the x-ray scanner and it would wipe out your memory every time, uh, people would be up in arms. Um, so obviously these devices are designed to be safe in a security environment just because it's such an everyday occurrence for, for everybody. We go, we all go to the airport, we all go to concerts or, or ball games. Uh, we have to go through this at some point in our lives. So they design the devices to to be safe in those environments. And one thing you you sort of touched on about, um, or we said that, that the devices can't be reprogrammed, and generally they let them run to the end of their life before um, swapping them out for a new device. But uh, a couple of times I've seen uh, sort of recall notices where they've had to, uh, presumably they update the firmware because of a, a security or a malfunction. Um, can you tell me any more about those sort of things? Yeah, and I've, I've been uh, on the inside when that's happened. And it's it's fascinating to watch. Um, you know, our, our devices are incredibly complex and uh, issues come up from time to time. When they do, I have I have seen from the inside how what the reaction is. It is not taken lightly. It is addressed immediately. 
and uh, you know aggressively. So especially with things like um, you know if a, if a device would not deliver therapy for some reason or security issues, people worry a lot about um, hacking of our devices. And it'd be incredibly hard, incredibly hard for someone to hack one of our devices. Uh, there are people who have done it in a clinical setting, but they've had months and months and months to um, work with a particular device and, and be able to do it. But to do it out in the real world would be incredibly hard because of the security measures they've, they've put in place. So uh, personally, I'm not worried about hacking. Um, but when an issue occurs, I have seen how uh, the the engineers and, and, and the quality people, how they, they jump into action and they really aggressively attack it and figure out what was the problem, why is it happening, how do we fix it? Um, and sometimes, oftentimes, that's with a security, uh, not security, a uh, software fix. So they upgrade the software in the device. Sometimes it is it does result in the removal of a device. Uh, but when they can avoid that, they do because there's a just an inherent risk of, of infection with any surgery. So uh, if it's you, know, you take a look at the, the issue, how critical is it? If it's an inconvenience, let's just let's uh, avoid the problem from happening. Let's prevent the problem from happening as best we can and get to the end of the life of the, of the device and then we'll replace it. But if it's a, if it's a critical issue, they address, address it either with a software fix or sometimes it is necessary to replace devices when that happens. Okay, that's that's brilliant. Thank you very much for all of that. And uh, I think we're just about coming to the end of my questions. Um, and I could just go over the list of your videos for anyone else who's uh, out there and who want to go and see them. So you've got the post-implant instructions, ICD interactions with magnets, including the iWatch, uh, the different types of devices that you can have implanted. One we haven't mentioned yet really was uh, remote monitoring and then the, the airport and venue security and loop recorders and leads. And I know you had um, you got, had a couple of videos that you posted into one of the groups recently, and I asked if you could let them out into the wild onto the, the yeah. YouTube, but unfortunately, by the looks of it, they're not going to be allowed to be freed up. And could you just tell me a little bit about the content of those videos? Sure. Uh, about two weeks ago, I think it was about two weeks ago, a fellow patient was invited to speak at Medtronic about her experience. And Medtronic does this quite frequently. Um, I think in, in my career at Medtronic, my, my 14 years, I saw well over 100 patients come in and, and tell the story, tell their story about what they went through. And it's incredibly helpful for um, uh, employees to see that it's, it's, a, it's inspirational, it's motivational, and it gives them ideas too about how to better serve patients. So uh, a friend of mine was coming in to do that and she uh, let me know that her husband wasn't able to make it. And so she added my name as a plus one. <laughs> and so I was invited back to Medtronic to watch her. And as part of the day, they gave us a tour of one of the labs, uh, testing labs at Medtronic, where they tested leads. Um, so they, they design a lead, they build it, and then they test it to see what would it take to break this. And as we were told, they they test it in extreme conditions. They, they do things to it that could never happen inside a body. They bend it in a way that just could never happen inside a body. And then they do it repeatedly to find out how many times would it take to bend like this to break the lead. Then they look at why did the lead break? And is there anything else we can do to make it even stronger so that it would last longer? And so they were showing us one that was bending basically in half. 
It was folding it over and over and over and over again. Uh, and that was one of the videos I took. And I said, boy, how many times does this, does this go? You know, my guess is what a half million or 600,000 times. And he laughed and he looked at the computer. And he says, well, these leads in here have now been through 12.6 million bends and they still haven't broken. And that just wow. blew me away <laughs> that they were going through this much testing. And then when they do break the lead, they're trying to figure out how can we make it even stronger so that it doesn't break. Uh, just blew me away. And uh, I, I, I am still working on, on getting approval for those videos. Um, you know, you work with a big company like Medtronic. Uh, they, they, they always have uh, legal take a look at something like this. And I'm sure it was some reluctance to put it out on the Internet. But I'm still trying to get that one out there. That's a fascinating video. Well, good, good luck with that, because I think it, it certainly helps people understand that these uh, this equipment that they've got inside them is very robust and very unlikely to fail. So um, it will help reduce anxiety. Right. Well, when I, when I talk to people about how, um, like you say, how robust they are, think about any item that you have in your house that you would have for, for, for 10 or 12 years. And, you know, how often do things break in your house? I've, I've had TVs that have died after, you know, five, six years. Um, how many times has, how many cars have you had that have needed to go into the shop multiple times just for anything? These are incredibly complex products and their failure rates are really, really low because of the, just the fantastic design that the engineers build into it and the testing they do to make sure that they don't fail. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've seen firsthand, I worked in the quality department at Medtronic for, for five years and, uh, whenever anything went wrong, boy, they're, they're looking at it and they're trying to make sure it doesn't happen again or how we can fix it to make sure that it, that it's better next time, uh, that, that we can have these products that can last 10, 12 years sometimes and not fail. It's just remarkable. And that's every company too. I'm talking about Medtronic because that's my experience. I have a friend who's a reliability engineer at Boston Scientific. They do the same things. Um, I, I know an engineer who moved over to St. Jude. They do the same things. Uh, these companies are really focused on quality and reliability. Um, so anytime you hear of, 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 of any kind of issue, it's because they, it's their, their diligence that they are finding these issues and developing the solutions to, the, to those issues and letting that information out into the world to let people know, here's this issue, here's what we're doing about it, here's how we're going to fix it. Great. Okay, for my last little question, have you got any tips or advice to give to other ICD or implant? Uh, is wearer the right word or host or cyborg? <laughs> what would you call yourself? Yeah, I joke, I joke that I'm a Borg uh, or cyborg. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I guess device patients is how I, I call them, um, how I call myself. I guess I'm a device patient. You know, advice would be, it's your health is a terrifying thing uh, when, when it starts to fail and having a device can be just terribly anxiety inducing. It doesn't need to be. Um, I think the solution to that is to learn about your device, learn about uh, what you can and cannot do. And quite honestly, there's very little that you can't do uh, after an implant solely because of your device. There may be things that you're limited by because of your heart condition. You know, perhaps you're not able to run marathons anymore. Perhaps you're not even able to run up the stairs anymore because of your heart condition. But if you could, your device can handle it. 
um, my, you know, my device is rated to go a hundred feet underwater and I like to scuba dive. And so I had a conversation with my doctor. He was a little reluctant at first, but he finally agreed. Yeah. So you can go scuba diving. And so I went scuba diving in St. Lucia uh, about eight weeks after my, my second implant. It was absolutely gorgeous. Uh, he's approved me to skydive if I want, but I'm too chicken. I'll probably never will. <laughs> there are very few things that as a device patient, there are very few things you can't do. I can't go on a tour of uh, Hoover Dam anymore because it's a hydroelectric jam. It, it generates too much electromagnetic energy. So I can't go on a tour of Hoover Dam anymore. Um, I shouldn't use a jackhammer. Uh, I shouldn't weld. But I know patients who do weld. So it's possible. Uh, but those are, those are two things I don't really think I'll, I'll miss in my life. But, you know, we went skiing in Colorado this past winter. Uh, We've, I've been on long bike rides, we've gone mountain climbing, we've done all these really active things because my device allows me to do that. So that's my advice is, is learn about your device, learn about your limitations, uh, if you have any that are health related, uh, but also learn about your device because you'll find that as long as your heart can handle it, your device is going to be right there with you. That's superb advice. Thank you very much, there, Doug. And so, where is it that people can actually see your videos? Before I'm we on YouTube. Up? You can search for my name, Douglas Rachek. Um, my username is an interesting one. It has to do with uh, drumming. It's called Flam Tap 92, F L A M T A P 92. So, you can search for my name or you can search for that and you'll find my page. Uh, and I have uh, about a dozen videos on there now. Do you want to just spell your surname to so people? Sure, it's. Yes. R-A-C-H-A-C. So you can look for Douglas Rachek. Okay, and I really would advise going checking them out. As you've heard, Doug speaks really uh, well and clear and uh, with a patient view in mind so that people can understand it without any gobbledygook. And they're, they're excellent videos, and uh, I really recommend you check them out. And big thanks to Doug for not only today, but for doing those videos as well. So thanks very much, Doug, and hopefully I'll speak to you again sometime soon. And thanks for being on the podcast. Great. Thanks, Paul.